Ignition sequence start. Three, two, one. Welcome back to University, everybody, the podcast where we explore the hard-hitting questions about Earth, existence, and the unknown. I'm your host, AJ Perrin. With me, as always, is... Judson Martin. And our special guest today, we are joined by Dr. Tim Cullinan from Iowa State. Hello. Tim, tell us a little bit about uh, your research, your work, what you uh, are teaching right now. Yeah, so uh, I actually don't do any research. I just teach. Um, I'm an associate teaching professor in material science uh, and engineering at Iowa State. I've been doing that now uh, for about eight years um, and enjoying that. Um, my role does not involve research, so I just have a, a teaching uh, commitment. And so I teach a variety of classes. For those that are at Iowa State University, uh, you might recognize my name because I teach a lot of students. I teach introductory material science for non-majors. So that would be like pretty much all engineering students. So that's uh, the big clients there are mechanical engineering, industrial, aerospace, um, and then a handful of the other Departments often take it as an elective, but um, I've kind of ran the numbers before and like in a steady state uh, when we're at sort of typical enrollments, I'll be teaching about one out of 10 on campus um, wow. So wow. at any moment. So that's, uh, that's a lot of students. Yeah. Well, we actually weren't planning to have um, Dr. Cullinan on this episode. And then I met with him yesterday to talk about some of the stuff that we we're going to talk about today, just get like an outside perspective on the topic. And it turned out to be a pretty lucrative conversation. I said, well, why don't you just do my job for me today? And you're going to come on and you're going to tell people about entropy, which is arguably maybe the hardest subject that we have ever um, covered here on the show, I think. Would you agree, Judd? Yeah, it's definitely, definitely one of the more confusing ones. Yeah. Other than maybe the... Warp drives was warp tough. Drives yeah, was, warp was drives tricky. was tough. <laughs> um, I mean, that included a re-record. And so hopefully that doesn't happen this time. And if it doesn't happen this time, then it's a success. Um, so let's really jump right into it. But first, uh, we have to cover um, our starting segments. And the first, let's talk about brain gains. So that's where we talk about stuff that we learned this week or interesting things that we've heard. And I've got a good one, actually, uh, this week. And I have to pull out my calculator for it. So the average shower produces 2.1 gallons of water per minute. So let's imagine for a second that you decrease the time that you shower by two minutes. Now okay. you have saved... 4.2 gallons of water from that shower. Okay. Right? Sure. So, Judd, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you shower every day. Yeah. Okay. And if you shower every day, that means you, a year, would save 1,500 gallons of water if you showered two minutes quicker. Every day? Every day. Okay. Now, Judd, do you plan to live a long time? I don't know. I mean, we'll see. Adrenaline junkie, you know, I just... <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, you're more of an iPad kid in my brain. Yeah, I don't no. see you getting out on too many adventures. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be bold. What and are you going to put me at I'm gonna, lifespan? I'm going to be bold and say 80. Okay. And I'm going to say you didn't shower once a day up until you're about 10, okay. which is valid. Sure. Okay. So now you have saved 107,000 gallons of water. And wow. do you know how much is in an average swimming pool? I don't. That would be 16,000. So now if you... Uh, tally that up across your lifetime, you would save enough water just showering two minutes quicker to fill almost seven swimming pools. And that's like a that's large a swimming pool. That's yeah. not even like a teeny traditional backyard swimming not pool. Not the kiddie pool? Yeah, that's about, it's about fourteen to 15,000 would be a pretty average one for a household. And so 16,000 is pretty big. Okay. 
Now, the reason I bring this up is because that example was just you. What about Matt? Okay, Matt takes, <laughs> Matt's our other roommate. He takes long showers, but he also doesn't listen to this show, so we don't have to worry about um, calling him out for that. And then, Tim, did you hear or learn anything interesting this week? Yeah. Maybe our conversation yesterday sparked something. Well, certainly it did, uh, but I have some comments outside of the, the entropy uh, Good. that were that were interesting that came my way this week. So um, just yesterday, actually, uh, a coworker of mine, it, he had published on this a little while ago, a few weeks ago, but it came to my attention yesterday that there's work being done here at Iowa State to try and make what are otherwise like brittle materials, strong, but brittle, to get them to offer some ductility. And um, for maybe the general audience, that may not make sense, but for those of you that have, you know, a mechanical inclination or engineering background, um, you might realize that that's, that's kind of a, a difficult thing to do. And so he's specifically working with ceramics, ultra-hard ceramics, and using electric fields to actually move dislocations. And you've been through my class. You yeah. might kind of yeah. appreciate just like how difficult that might be to even cause that right. in, any, in any way, like with force or whatever. And so they're able to do that with, um, with fields, with electricity, electrical fields accurately. Tim, what, how would you describe a dislocation? Like, what does that mean to a material? Right. A dislocation so, is a good thing or a bad thing or what? Uh, they're actually a good thing. So wh what that is, is it's a defect in what would or otherwise be an orderly arrangement of the atoms, the ions, whatever the particles are. And for those that don't know, the, the quick uh, rundown of this is that in ceramic materials and strongly bonded materials, it's really difficult for those types of defects to move. And by contrast, in metals, they tend to move easily, which is why metals show ductility. We can typically bend metals. We can deform them a lot before they fracture and break. Whereas in a lot of other systems like ceramics, um, highly covalent, highly ionic systems, those defects don't have that kind of mobility, typically. What we're finding is that if we put them under the right conditions here with electric field, they start to become mobile. And evidently enough that they start to offer what we would call ductility, which is kind of crazy. Like that's not a term that we normally associate with uh, ceramics. And so, again, I, I've, I haven't looked into that work in, in great detail. I just sort of saw a headline come my way um, yesterday. And so I'm, I'm excited to dig a little deeper into that. So are you saying we're taking something like, like you said, ceramics, could that be something like what you find in your kitchen, like something you could never imagine bending can now be bent more because of these electric fields? Well, Certainly you can find ceramics like in your kitchen, you can find them in your bathroom. Like a lot of people are familiar with, you know, I always say toilets and bricks, but we're really talking about advanced ceramics. So these would be um, compounds that you probably don't have access to like in your everyday life, but they're used in engineering. They're used in all kinds of things um, for other reasons, but usually not in like everyday life. You probably don't own any of these ceramics, but they uh, certainly are important and they contribute to other other fields, other, you know, companies might buy and use these ceramics for different reasons, but personally, you probably don't own any of these. Okay. But you are familiar with ceramics, certainly, yeah. 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 So now let's move into news before we start here. Just a couple things that have, I always, like, the phrase that comes to mind is cross my desk, but that's, I don't have a desk and I usually do my work on the couch. But um, a couple things that have caught my attention recently, which is one, um, so we know the sample uh, from the asteroid Bennu, um, that was collected by the OSIRIS-REx uh, spacecraft from NASA has, the sample has touched down on planet Earth um, and NASA is working through that and they are scheduling a public release of like their initial findings on the 11th. Um, so we'll learn a little bit about what they initially found uh, from that sample. And then another big, which is again, like I, I kind of breezed over that, but that's a 
huge accomplishment to be able to take a spacecraft and go land it on a moving object in our solar system and then have that return. This thing launched in 2016, so it's been seven years since uh, its original launch. And to have success throughout that entire mission, to have nothing go wrong and bring deliver that back, um, is truly an achievement. And we will learn a lot from uh, just a silly old rock, actually. Um, and then another thing was that by pointing the James Webb Space Telescope at Europa, so I think how it works at NASA is they let, like, they allocate time with the James Webb Space Telescope to different research groups. And yeah. one of the groups was looking at Europa, which is one of the moons of Jupiter, and they found a pretty heavy amount of carbon on the surface. And this is a big deal because if there wasn't something constantly producing this carbon, um, it wouldn't have a reason to stay like on the surface it would have dissipated or gone elsewhere but because we ha it's a amount that's enough to detect it um scientists have reason to believe that there is actually possible signs of life in the subsurface oceans of europa that is then like bleeding this carbon out towards the surface and europa is like covered covered in ice with a giant ocean spanning the entire moon underneath it so that it's is a pretty interesting topic yeah yes and i think the 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 way that they choose the missions that they allow, like the time for um, on something like the James Webb Space Tel Telescope is pretty interesting. So like they only have a given amount of fuel on board and they can't really go refuel that very easily. Yeah. So when they have to, you know, adjust the telescope, they're, you know, either burning fuel or doing some other maneuver to, to reorient and they have to choose these these very wisely. Yeah, it makes me think of the... Um the satellite we talked about that did the stuff with Saturn and Enceladus, what was that? Remind me? Cassini. Cassini. Yeah, okay. So that one, when we were looking at how it moves, I believe that NASA comes up with some really interesting ways for propulsion for these spacecraft that aren't like just going straight up and down, back and forth, right? Uh, which is they sometimes have like, you know, it's slipping my mind. You have to go listen to the episode on Enceladus. It's actually one of our more popular ones, but um, I think it's like either n some weird nuclear cells. Oh, yeah. They, yeah. they have these um, molecules which are, or these, these systems which are radiating off energy over huge periods of time, and they collect the energy from that radiation and then turn it into power for the, the spacecraft. That's, that's pretty neat. Yeah, I, don't, I guess I don't remember the... Yeah, I'm was that, surprised I remember I don't, that, I think if, Was that in our... I don't remember that being like part of the discussion, I guess. I think, maybe. I don't know. I bet you tuned me out, so I'm not surprised. Yeah, whatever. Uh, let's jump right into the episode now, though. Um, and like I said, today we're talking about entropy. And if you've never heard what that means, uh, then I'm sorry that the first explanation of entropy has to come from me, um, which is why I'm actually going to let you avoid that. And I'm going to offload this onto Tim um, because it seems silly of me to explain something about thermodynamics when I have somebody who studies thermodynamics right next to me. Right. Well, I'll give it a try and uh, a little maybe inside joke. If we create a little bit of chaos here today in the podcast. That's, you know, well-suited. It's ap it's about entropy after all. So yes. uh, yes. perfect time for that. Uh, so entropy. First of all, it's worth noting that entropy is, as a concept, very abstract. So if you're having a hard time following along, that's okay. Uh, we'll do our best here to verbally try to communicate that to you. Um, it has different meaning and different interpretation, different like value that it brings in different contexts. So entropy as a term, as a concept, gets used in a lot of different spaces. Um, it certainly has origins in thermodynamics and in material science, but we hear that term sometimes show up in other places too. Um, and so we'll kind of explore a little bit of that with some examples. 
the origin of the term, again, comes from thermodynamics. It comes from Rudolf Clausius, who was studying um, on the heels of uh, Carnot. Maybe for those that have taken thermodynamics, you may have heard of things like the Carnot cycle and so forth. Um, and he studied heat engines and things um, in France a long time ago. But on the heels of that work, Clausius was interpreting some of that work, and he came up with and coined the term entropy. Entropy, if we break down the word, has two parts. E-N-T-R-O-P-Y is the spelling. E-N comes from energy, and tropy, through translations, I'm looking it up. So from Greek, actually, turning or change, and in German to English, it ends up being transformation. So there's kind of two contributions to that word that he created. E-N, energy, and tropy, transformation. So already we see a connection between this concept of entropy and energy. They're not the same. They are related in certain contexts. Like in thermodynamics, they're certainly related. Um, but there are contexts where, where energy is maybe not relevant. So maybe like in pure mathematics or statistics or these, some of these other examples. But from the origins of where the, the word came from and the people that were studying these things, um, there is a connection to that energy. So Carnot was originally studying the, the engines and thinking about engine efficiencies and trying to make better engines, essentially, um, and better machines, more efficient machines. And so that work um, was being done in like something before the mid-1800s. And then here comes Clausius, and kind of on the heels of that, is looking at some of this work and is interested in really this, this idea of what's called like the dissipation of heat, or this idea that there's in any kind of real process that occurs, there's going to be a degradation of energy. That no 100% ener efficiency. Right, right. That energy cannot be used 100% efficiently. There's always going to be creation of heat that's not really usable in, 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 in sort of a lay um, explanation that sort of wasted heat. So you could think about examples in everyday life where if you're going to traverse a mile, there are different ways you could do that. You could walk and you could traverse that mile at a low pace, or you could sprint it, or you could like scramble and tumble and make your way. And you can imagine some of those journeys are going to create a lot more um, exhaustion in you and create a lot of excess heat and sweat and so forth. And so that brings up this idea that in any real process that has a, you know, a finite rate where there's transformations that are ensued, there's going to be this dissipation of usable, of usable energy, essentially. Not all of it is completely usable. If we tend to, now here's kind of a, a caveat to that. If we start to slow down processes and or make the changes very, very small. So instead of a mile that you have to traverse, maybe it's a millimeter. And if we could slow things down, you start to approach higher and higher efficiencies, all right? So there's this general concept of kind of rates and also the extent of change at play here. And one of the big ideas to realize up front is that if we have a process playing out where there's a lot of change and or if we're trying to make those changes quickly, we're not gonna, by nature, we're going to have some inefficiencies. But if we slow things down and make incremental change and only consider small changes, we have a chance to kind of get close to that, um, that limit of 100%. But it's a limit, which is like other limits in mathematics. We can't quite get there in, in reality. Entropy, as we were starting off this conversation, it's really a concept that traverses lots and lots of different um, fields of study and even perspectives. And so later on, about 20 years later, Boltzmann comes along and he starts looking at things from a different perspective. He starts to think about the actual like arrangement of matter that's inside of maybe um, a system of interest, some what we call a thermodynamic system or a material system. He made efforts, among other people, to try to create a framework where instead of thinking about 
this in terms of heat flow and work and efficiencies and so forth, which are natural to do if you're thinking about engines. And that was the, the practical application at the time. But then this was a pivoting point where now we're starting to think about what's going on at the fundamental particle level. And so he comes up with an equation um, that actually allows us to assign an absolute number to entropy. And it's very much related to the details of arrangements at the particle level. And so it's kind of worthwhile to, to point out that Clausius's mathematical uh, contribution, he was in a position to talk about changes of entropy, but he wasn't really in a position to assign absolute entropies. But in the other perspective, if you have all of the details of the particles in your system and the configuration options that they have, you could use Boltzmann's formula to actually assign an absolute entropy. And so maybe it's worthwhile to point out that we have a symbol for entropy, it's S. And so that's a, a standard symbol mathematically um, in thermodynamics for, for entropy is S. So we might use that term here from time to time today. So again, for the people who are like completely lost right now, what is, this episode will be full of examples and metaphors and stuff like that. It might be easier actually to just back up slightly. So if we were to think about just a like a, a piece of material. This is kind of the, the, the space I occupy as material. So if you think about like a block of simple metal, right? And for those that don't know, I'll clue you in. Something like aluminum pure occupies space as atoms in an orderly fashion, right? In a fairly orderly fashion as a solid. So nonetheless, if you were to zoom in and see those atoms, there's a pattern to them. There's an orderly arrangement similar to like a marching band compared to like, you know, um, just a crowd of people that's just doing something random, okay? Whereas if we compare that same block of aluminum to its melted state, if you heat it up and make it a liquid, those atoms are now kind of random and disorderly and more chaotic. And so very conceptually, we can already make a claim that the liquid state for that system has a higher entropy, has more disorder, has more chaos compared to the, say, solid state. We can add a different contribution to entropy, which is composition. Now we can say, well, what if it's not just pure aluminum? What if you've got some copper in there once in a while or something? You can kind of take this to a 2D example and think about, like you were saying, like a grid of positions. And you could fill those positions maybe with like a marble, like they're all the same color, all right? All blue or something. And there's only one unique way to do that. If all of those positions are the same color, there's only one unique way to create that configuration. It'll always look that way. But if you bring along even one red marble into that grid, there's now a lot of ways you can place that red marble. And so you've introduced entropy, you've introduced disorder and chaos at the kind of chemical level. You don't necessarily have to change the arrangement of the grid. Like imagine you like maybe drilled some holes in a board so you could set these marbles. You don't even have to change that necessarily. You can introduce entropy just through what we call composition, just through changing the nature of what's sitting on a site right? Or both could be in play. And, we've, and we could talk about some of those examples too. Um, so we know that entropy has to do with configuration. And there can be ordered configurations and there can be disordered configurations. And we can look at this, like you said, from a number of perspectives. This entropy can be used to describe um, stuff like encryption and data, but it can also be used to describe, like most traditionally in like a thermodynamic setting would be energy or like you said, composition. So there are multiple different configurations you can have, some of them ordered and some of them disordered. And yet, um, kind of the theme of entropy is that it's constantly moving towards the disorder and away from the order. Uh, and now, I think the interesting thing is why. Right, so 
that is actually connected to the, the second law of thermodynamics, which comes from Clausius's work, which states that the entropy of the universe, so think about what that really means. The universe is everything there is inside of that bound, right? That entropy is either uh, zero or increasing. Now, we're at, a, uh, our, we're at a state that's along the timeline. We know we exist. We can see each other. There's things around us. So we are in an entropy state along an increasingly higher entropic path. So we're continuing out towards higher entropy states as time continues. And so that's the essence of the second law of thermodynamics. The thing about Clausius's work is that it's still a little bit nebulous. Like it's hard for humans to like witness and observe and carefully track like heat flows and work. But this is where I actually kind of prefer the statistical view because in some ways, at least for, for the beginning examples that we might discuss, I think it's a little bit easier to kind of understand the inherent origins of entropy, even though entropy does play a role um, and can help with those other perspectives like we were talking about earlier, like with engines and so forth. And so this kind of connects back to what we were saying about Boltzmann. So he creates this equation. He really chooses an equation, all right? S equals a constant called Boltzmann's constant. So S equals K times log omega. I was about to say that's conceited to call it after yourself, <laughs> but if you do something this like spectacular, I guess you kind of get to do that, right? Well, I, to, in full disclosure, I don't know if he named the constant. I suspect that it was named after him later, oh, okay. but I'm not positive. Yeah, but it's, it's actually, for as far as like profound equations go, I mean, oftentimes they are very, like seemingly very simple, but it's kind of, I think it's really interesting to dig a little deeper. You know, you could think about like E equals MC squared, like one of the most famous equations that are out there. And you could dig into that and you could realize like, oh my gosh, there's so much like nuance here and like just genius in that, in that construct. It's a similar thing here. And I think if we explore that a little bit, that, that will come out. So nonetheless, he, he basically chooses this formula. Like remember, entropy is a human invented concept to help try to describe and understand systems in a in a predictable manner, right? That's the whole point about, you know, uh, science and engineering is to try to create frameworks that allow us to control and predict systems, right? So he creates this and chooses this equation and we should define that term. So entropy equals K, a proportionality constant, uh, times the log, the natural log of omega. And omega represents the count of possible configurations that a system might take. So already we see an interesting thing here. S is proportional to omega through the log function. And so nonetheless, S increases as the number of configuration options increase. So that means that systems that are capable of showing more possible configurations, by definition, have higher entropy, according to this formula, all right? And so we could dig a little bit deeper into that. And this, by the way, is the beginning of what's called statistical mechanics. So statistical mechanics as a field of study was coined by J.W. Gibbs, famous um, thermodynamics investigator at, in a similar time. So he, along with Boltzmann and along with James Clerk Maxwell, kind of work on this field, this new perspective known as statistical mechanics. And they're thinking about systems in different ways, small, or thinking about the small particles that are at play, their arrangements, their configurations, their little tiny energies that, of course, sum up to the, the full energy of like a, a real system. So let me get this straight. You're saying Boltzmann, what Boltzmann was saying is the more possible configurations you have, aka like the, the greater the size of the system, uh, the greater the entropy. So bigger systems like by default have to basically be at higher entropy or be moving towards higher entropy. 
Yeah, that's a good point. There's kind of a couple of ways that you could imagine, easy ways that you could increase entropy. You could just make a bigger system, right? And it would potentially have more entropy. So yes, it's an extensive property, entropy, meaning it scales with the system size. So if I have like a small bucket of liquid aluminum and I have a large bucket of liquid aluminum, the larger one, even though they're both liquid and they might have a very similar overall structure throughout, the larger bucket has more entropy because it's a larger system. So there's an extensive nature to entropy. That's an important point that's going to come back here in a second. What ends up happening here is Boltzmann chooses this functionality log, and, that, and that's important because there's a couple of things that are required. One of those criterion is that we need the whatever function we choose for, for determining absolute entropy, we need to be able to account for the fact that it scales with options, and we see that the, the log function is positively correlated with its input here. The input is the count of choices. And just as an example, we talked earlier about the, um, the simple case of like the grid, where if you have the grid and you're going to put all one color, like all blue marbles, how many ways did we say could you do that? I have all kinds of marbles I could choose from, but I'm going to put only blue on that grid. How many ways? I was hoping Judd would like Phil, like jump it's in there. It's not zero and it's not two. It's just one? Yes, exactly. It's just yeah. one. It's yeah. just one, yeah. So not a, not a trick question. So it's just no. one. Now, here's the real trick. What's the log of one? Zero. 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 Yeah. So the entropy of a unique offering is, by definition, zero, yeah. right? So a perfect offering, in this context, we're thinking about kind of like chemical entropy, like red marbles, blue marbles. Yeah. And if they're all unique, if they're all the same, no entropy. One unique, no entropy. Like no that's, disorder. That's kind no of, nothing. right, no yeah. disorder. There's That's sort of a fundamental outcome of this log function. That needs to be in place. We already talked about that. There needs to be a lower bound of zero on the entropy. All right, now most systems have some sort of disorder, so most systems are above zero, but the point is there needs to be that lower limit. That's good. And think about it. The input needs to be a count, all right? And a count of zero means you have no particles. No particles don't express any entropy, right? So it's right. therefore log of zero is undefined, and so that also kind of fits in the framework here. So the log function is showing to be uh, very good at satisfying some yeah. of these connections back to the macroscopic. Right. But there's another one that's really important, and that is that this extensive nature that we talked about. If you were to divide, let's say a system in half, just to make it easy, all right? We have a system and we're just gonna put like a barrier in place. Not gonna like physically separate them. We're just gonna imagine a barrier and think about this idea that we could kind of consider the system as the sum of the two parts or the sum of n parts. Well, if we knew the entropy of each of those contributing parts, if we, could, if we had that number, uh, for each of those, those individual S values, we could sum them and get the total S, the total entropy of the system. Well, think about log function, all right? If you have, let's say, N, or we'll just keep it at two for now, if you have two subsystems, right? Two subsystems that have their own contributing configuration options, omega. You could take the product of those omegas and insert that as your input to, the, to Boltzmann's function and Guess what happens because of log? What's the log of oh, what's like the log, log of two? What's the log of a product of two numbers? So like log a b equals log yes, a plus yes log yes. So it maintains the extensive nature, right? Yeah. So what you find is that just to verbalize that for folks, maybe we could throw an equation up. I don't know, but um, uh, to, to summarize that, the total entropy s would be equal to k b log of the product of the two different configuration counts. But because of log properties that Judd remembered, we find that that's just going to be 
k times log of the first count plus k times log of the second count, which lo and behold is just the individual entropies summed. So it maintains that connection as well. And so it was a very, Robust you might say, equation. yeah, yeah. Very, very clever choice uh, and very useful choice for, dis for then allowing that connection back to some of these macroscopic details. I can't even believe that somebody could just like make an equation like, I'm so <laughs> glad I live right now when I can just get taught these in school or like get fed them through Google when I have to do my homework. But it's like, at some point, there was a person who was trying to describe a property of our universe and had no idea how to how to do so except by just critical thinking alone and lo and behold these equations hold up after after centuries um because it turns out our universe is like a logical system that that has these properties inherently you know you know this was one of i'm gonna tell you i've been you know basically in school a very long time i'm in like 25th grade or something i kind of joke about that but um <laughs> this you know i, I was teaching thermodynamics for the first time and on the hook for teaching that, you know, a couple of years ago. And when I finally, you know, found a reference that explained this, it was one of the most satisfying things of my entire career because it connected, really? it connected dots. You know, you think about in, in school, you learn about the log properties and you think I'm never going to need that. <laughs> and I'm telling you, that was one of the most satisfying things to read. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this connects so much yeah, so in such an elegant way, like, that. holy yeah. cow, like, this is really incredible. And I, I just, like, I just get chills thinking about it right now. It's just really, really satisfying and elegant. Um, and, again, glad that somebody else figured that out. And, uh, uh, yeah. I actually wonder, like, what are the origins of, like, the log function in mathematics, like, how and how it plays so closely into, like, real-life examples? Yeah. I think a, the bigger question is... Whom, what, where the log function come from? Like even Boltzmann, yeah, that's what I was saying. Um, like, was, what's the origin? Yeah, like even Boltzmann was like, oh, thank God somebody came up with this, so I could just throw it into my equation, and now here we are, like getting. What are we going to use his equation for to add on to the next thing? It's like there was, I don't know. It goes back to probably like Greece or something like that, but still, Greece. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's that's nuts. Um, so yeah, so we've talked about um, up to this point configurations, and we've talked about how entropy is low entropy is meaning order and high entropy is meaning disorder um and that when we have these bigger systems and they're scaling up we increasingly see a movement towards disorder and there's actually a very elegant explanation for this within statistics um if we're looking at something like rolling dice while we're still on the topic of the equation and so that kind of leads into what you're talking to okay wait so um you what you're saying is never mind we're gonna no, say something more about the i want to say one more okay, thing no, and then you it. go yeah um so while we're on the topic of the equation, so we have the, the Boltzmann constant times the log of some omega. I wanted to talk about some statistics that I saw for, I don't know who made these estimates, but somebody estimated the amount of entropy that was in the universe. Oh, oh, that was me. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you did okay. that? Yeah. Okay. During the Big Bang? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, you were back there? Yeah. Okay. Um, so they've estimated that the entropy of the universe was the Boltzmann constant times 10 to the 88. 10 to the power 88, mm -hmm. and that was mm -hmm. the entropy, total entropy of the universe during the big, or right before the Big Bang, which is crazy to think about because how do you count how many different positions all these particles, like every particle in the universe, how could the be energy in. can be configured? Yeah. They have that many states. I don't know who decided that that's how many it was. That's kind of crazy to think about. But now today they estimate that um, the entropy is about 10 to the 103rd uh, Boltzmann constant, which is about a quadrillion times larger. Yeah, it's not like, it's not like, um, what you said, 103? Yeah. Yeah, so it's not like 15 times more than yeah. that. It's t times 10 times, times 10, 10 times 10 to the, yeah, like 10 to the 15th 
more, um, which is nuts. And I think speaking of like that, that start of the universe thing. So I watched the same video that you watched that you're, that you're, that I think you're referring to, uh, this from, but, um, the interesting thing is that when you think of the start of the universe, um, which I think we may have talked about before, but the, the, the simple like explanation or description of the start of the universe, it is, it was a hot and it was a dense state. It was a cluster of a lot of energy. And like, to me, I look at that and I think like, that's, so chaotic that's so like mixed up um that's so complex but this is where the the idea that like entropy is this misunderstood concept comes in because that start of the universe like you said was lower entropy in fact when we have this configuration of energy from this initial compact state um there's only there's there's many fewer configurations that is when the universe expanded and created complex systems that would continue to drive this entropy forward um so when I said the start of the universe was low entropy and very um, low disorder, a lot of high order, that's the opposite of disorder if you didn't know, um, is that the temperature actually from point to point, and we know this by looking at like the cosmic background radiation now using very advanced telescopes that are beyond the scope of my knowledge, um, we know that the temperature fluctuations back then were like less than 0. 0.001 um, of a degree between any point in the universe when it was in that hot, dense state. Um, which goes to show how, like, uniformly this energy was distributed, uh, which in turn shows us why entropy was uh, so low back then. And remember, there's different kind of contributions to the overall entropy, and it's honestly for real systems, it's hard to track all of it and make even make sure you've accounted for everything um, because there might even be things we're just not even familiar with. It's possible. Yeah. So let me give you an example to maybe help with with that. Remember we said it was an extensive property. It's dependent on the system's size, not just the count of things, but also in some contexts, like the space they even have to occupy, right? Yeah. And so in the context of at the beginning, if it's all in this relatively small encapsulated volume, as there are more and more space opportunities for particles to exist, then naturally the number of locations over which even a single particle can reside increase. And so overall, and then think about the vast number of particles there are that now have more and more and more options. It just scales tremendously rapidly and increases that, that entropy. So think about what's happened since the Big Bang. We have the formation of planets. We have Earth where we have, we know we have crystalline matter. We know there's matter that occupies orderly structures, right? Crystalline structures. So in some locations in the universe, locally, the entropy is lower than it might have been otherwise. But the overall change is trending towards increasing. And so that's other, another useful thing to point out. Why is this trend pointing towards higher disorder? Because that's, I think we haven't mm -hmm. quite touched on that yet. It's like, I know they, they call entropies, ent entropy uh, times arrow because it continually moves in one direction. The entropy of the universe is constantly increasing. And, but why is that? And I think we have to dive into statistics um, to completely understand that. Would you agree? That's a reasonable starting point um, for the discussion. So the um, this gets into the weeds a little bit, and and it's it would require a bit more math than maybe we're capable of communicating verbally here. Right. But um, systems would like to find an equilibrium state, so maybe it's worthwhile to even define equilibrium first. Like, what does equilibrium even mean? If you're in a truly equilibrium state, 
Like, what would be a way to describe that, do you think? No change. No change, right. Yeah. So, like, the universe would be very boring, by the way, if right. things weren't changing. So the fact that we're in transient states is actually is useful, right? So systems can come close to equilibrium. Like, we observe that all the time. So certain systems, like if we were to look around the room even, like some of the metal things that are supporting the microphones, whatever, like, they're reasonably close to equilibrium. But some things are not. Like... Uh, maybe we're digesting food and inside of our bodies, which are complicated. There's all kinds of things constantly happening, right? So even though, you know, sitting here and nothing seems to change on the outside, there's a lot going on on the inside. And so there, we're like far from equilibrium in certain locations, even within ourselves, right? One way you could kind of think about equilibrium is sort of tracking properties of material. Like maybe you have, like, maybe you could imagine being somehow a third-party existential viewer of the universe, all right. I know that doesn't really make sense, but just for argument's sake, you're like sitting out there. And There's you're... somebody listening to this right now that's like, oh, well, aren't we all really yeah, third yeah, party yeah, observers? Yeah. So it's okay. Yeah. So nonetheless, like I'm not part of them. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm on my own. Mm-hmm. So um, if you could do that and you could maybe like have the ability to track certain things, like maybe whatever it is, temperature, any number of things, being some math, skipping some, some things here. But if you take it on faith that um, that systems that are isolated, the universe, I would argue, is isolated, um, can only maintain their entropy currently or they can increase. You can't, overall, you can't go backwards, right? Like that's time. Right, yeah. like time. That's kind of the, the, the underlying tenet here. So with that in mind, if we observe no changes, we would reach an equilibrium state, all right? So if you're this third-party observer watching the universe and there are no changes occurring... Again, life as we know it, everything as we know it would, would probably be quite a bit different than it is. We're, we're or non-existent even. Like, like I, how I, would you even, I, how would your heart beat? It, well, right. It opens up a lot of questions that I'm not capable of answering. It's, it's sort of, um, you know, it's an interesting discussion. But the point is, if you could watch and monitor these things, you would, if you were looking for the equilibrium configuration of the universe, you'd be looking for where the collection of all possible properties you could track, none of them would be changing anymore. Right. But if you see change, right, if you see them changing, like whatever that might be, temperature is an easy one to think about, density. the universe, density, if those are fluctuating, we're not in an equilibrium state, all right? right. And we, the underlying principle is that systems tend toward, even the universe, tends towards an equilibrium. Well, what the, what the second law says is there's one property that we could conveniently use to track whether or not we're in the equilibrium state, and that's the entropy. Because if the entropy is changing, then that means that we are continuing to traverse through states towards equilibrium, towards equilibrium. And we said that entropy can only increase, right? That was sort of an underlying theme. And so if we're continuously watching this increase, increase, we're going through transient states, if we somehow arrived at a condition where the entropy no longer changed, and we waited, and this third-party observer, again, waited and observed and watched, that would be the equilibrium state for the universe, all right? And then we would expect no more change beyond that. And so, the, as noted earlier in the conversation, we have evidence that there's continually evolving entropy right now. We're in like the sort of a, like a climb up a mountain. We are still climbing the mountain, and then eventually there's a plateau. And then when that plateau is reached... It never goes up or down again. Right. right. And, and associated with that would be not only just the entropy constant, if we're in an equilibrium state, but the temperature would no longer change, the density would no longer change, any property you might track. It kind of made me think about a conversation that we had in a previous episode on the expansion of the universe. Would yeah. be like for no entropy, for entropy not to be changing, the expansion of the universe would have to stop. Yeah. So that would be. Or yeah. again, to like if the 
Well, okay. Well, here's an idea. If the universe eventually, like when we talked about with Neil, he was like, okay, it's going to expand. And then we don't know, we can't say quite for sure if it's going to like reach a stopping point or continue or like the expansion will accelerate and eventually rip uh, all the molecules apart at the atom scale or if it will eventually condense. But I'm thinking here, like if eventually it will start to like reverse itself and go backwards and condense itself, like wouldn't that be returning energy into the system and therefore lowering the entropy, returning to this denser form. And I feel like based on the conjecture that entropy can only go increase, like how could that even be possible? Yeah. Well, the question, remember the where questions. that, right. And remember where that came from. That came from observations. Uh, this whole framework came from observations like in engines and things like where to date, we haven't observed a breaking of this rule. I'm not going to claim personally that there's not some set of conditions that are in our future or in some other you know, spatial arrangement where, where maybe there, there's a reversal. And there, there's a school of thought out there. I can't remember the name of it. We talked Harvard. about it the other day. No. Oh. Um, the, the, it's the, the big contraction or the big... Well, oh, yeah, basically where if you think about time as sort of like a VHS tape, you put it in and we're just kind of able to... Per, humans are able to perceive sort of one frame at a time. And with a very rapid set of frames sequential, that's what we experience as sort of life or as time. There's a school of thought that when we get to the end of the tape, that it's going to, like, when we get to the limits of the universe expansion, that there will be a contraction back. Yeah. And what that is or how that actually executes out, meaning is, is it going to be literally in rewind and we proceed through time backwards? Yes. It, you know, that, I mean, again, is unverifiable. We have no way to know, but there is a school of thought. There are people that think that it might be that way or that it might just be generally a contraction and it's just going to be, um, maybe not exactly events reversing in, in the in the reverse sequence exactly but nonetheless an overall contraction with i don't know but it's uh, it's an interesting thought there are there's actually some you know pop culture like movies and things that that account for this and and have uh some of their storyline based on some of these these theories um i think it's interesting but ultimately it's unverifiable um all we know is what we've observed previously and what we tend to observe and that's where a lot of these you know so-called laws come from is that to date we haven't really found anything that that violates them and that's that's what makes them a law that was very elegant. And I think that's like perfect time for a break here. We're going to return from the break and talk more about entropy and what it has to do with you. So we're back from the break and we're here to talk to you more about entropy. And now we're going to explain a little bit more about why entropy is only really moving in one direction and whether or not that's a good thing. All right, let's talk about some statistics, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the things, again, that, that is important to understand is that when Boltzmann came along and started to think about things at the particle level, real systems that are of interest to people have lots and lots and lots of particles. And so it becomes very difficult to even track any metric about those particles as soon as you get to even a, a system size of, you know, hundred or a thousand. And we're going to kind of try to convince you of that here in a moment. Yeah. We talked about that yesterday. Actually, you're saying like humans don't have like an entropy meter or anything. We can't go around and freeze time and then look at uh, the configuration, pause it and look at every bond in between atoms. And statistics kind of helps us um, make inferences about the measurements of entropy. Right. And a lot of the tools that we need um, in this framework just come from statistics, as we'll see. Um, and it's a great point you just made. We have a hard time with that. Can you imagine back then? There weren't computers. There weren't ways yeah. to do that, right? Simulate so, it. Yeah. yeah. Well, even now we can't simulate uh, accurately like huge systems. I know you said something about how like it could take 
even for a supercomputer, like thousands of years to um, try to make measurements on entropy of a, of a given system. Right. Well, if like the, the argument that I was making was that if you had like a simulation of, let's say, a realistically sized piece of material, like what would that even mean? Like take a dice of metal, like a, a metal chunk about the size of a dice that fits in your hand. There's going to be about a mole of atoms there. And even just like tracking 10 to the 26 scalar values in a computer and being able to do calculations and manipulations, yeah, very quickly the computing power is not capable of keeping up with, you know, what we call realistic size systems. Um, if, again, you're tracking with like that full accuracy that, that you would want, so you might have to, this is where, again, I'm a little bit out of my uh, element. I don't do this type of thing for a living, but there are people that certainly model materials and they have tricks up their sleeve to, uh, to try to get around some of those issues. But um, yeah, system size, particle count is definitely a, a limitation when it comes to those methods, for sure. You know, I, I, I was just, so one of the things that I did, I did some simulations of from flow around a given geometry. And this was entropy, or well, it was enthalpy, which is, I think, closely related in some ways, or at least a little bit related. And it was just one of these equations that I looked at, and I was like, I don't know what this means. But my professor was like, just do it. Yeah. <laughs> so it was just, it was part of the simulation and they took forever. But also one of the research here at Iowa State that I was reading about was modeling um, materials on an atomic scale and how they could really only model, like they were using the supercomputer that we have here on campus and they were really only able to model like a thousand by a thousand at the largest uh, molecules at one time for the specific simulation, just because how intense it was. Yeah. Um, so let's move into statistical mechanics and kind of this notion of what we would call microstates and macrostates and our good friend uh, Boltzmann. Right. Well, Boltzmann alongside another two important figures, J.W. Gibbs and James Clerk Maxwell, they together, the three of them sort of came up with, uh, and J.W. Gibbs actually coined the term statistical mechanics. So if you've been listening to the conversation so far and you've heard us say things like, counts of possible configurations and so forth. And in your head, if you're thinking, kind of sounds like probability and statistics, you're right. And so nonetheless, this perspective lends itself nicely to leverage those tools. And more accurately, a lot of these tools that we need come from the, I guess, the subfield of um, combinatorics. And so I hope I'm saying that right. But basically thinking about combinations, permutations, and things like that, which would generally fall into the realm of statistics as well. And so there's some key definitions that we want to get through here, and then we'll be able to, uh, to kind of connect the dots. So first is this idea of a, a microstate. And so the, in, in statistical mechanics, we're interested in the connections between microstates and macrostates. A microstate refers to a specific state of a system. And so we're going to kind of think about easy examples, easy systems to begin with. And so maybe like the, a system of two dice, two six-sided fair dice, meaning there are six options for each dice that you could roll, and they're equally likely, all right? So there's no bias. It's not a loaded dice or anything. And so we have, if we track the roll, and let's say that, for example, if we roll two dice and we get a one and a two, or conversely, a two and a one, all right, then we have defined the microstate of that system. We have information about each observable outcome. Here, the observable outcomes are the roll that we get. And there, since there are two dice in the system, there are two things to track. One, we're only tracking one property of the two objects in this example. So again, a simple system. And the microstate is the listing of whatever we're tracking for all the particles. Here, we're only tracking the 
face of the die that's face up, right? And so two pieces of information is all we're tracking for those one, one piece from each dice. So the microstate would be uh, one and a two or vice versa, a two and a one, all right? They're kind of considered equivalent here. Another way that we could kind of think about microstates as well, and we'll kind of flesh out this little example here. We had talked about that earlier with like the, the grid, right? Where we put all blue or we introduce a little bit of color a specific arrangement on that grid, like where exactly that red dot, that red marble sits, would be a way to define, if we just had the, let's just say a system of like 100 uh, marbles and only one of them is red, knowing the location of the red is, is enough information to kind of um, describe that, that microstate. So it's a specific instance of the system state, if that makes sense. One of the things that um, is interesting here as a theme is that as we kind of alluded to earlier, if we increase the count of things that we're tracking and or the options of things that we're tracking, that can lend itself to like increased entropy. And so let's try to think about that for a minute. Okay, so if we think about an easy example would be the alphabet. So if I had like, imagine like the Scrabble game and I took just the 26 letters of the alphabet, threw them into a bag, and we're gonna think about the ways that we can configure those letters, right? So there's only one unique way that we can sequence those tiles that are featuring the letters. There's only one unique way to sequence them in the correct order that we know as the alphabet, right? One unique way. But how many total ways are there to sequence those 26 letters? In other words, how many scrambled ways are there? There's actually 26 factorial. The first time we make the selection, we have 26 choices. The next time it's 25, and we take that product down the line. Winds up being 26 factorial is the total configurations. But we know there's only one that's the actual alphabet. So already we see that there are way more configurations of the alphabet that are scrambled, yeah, yeah, that are wrong, than are correct. And so among other examples we've surveyed, there's often way more sort of so-called scrambled states than the unique cases, right? Where there's some specific case you're after, um, whether that's all blue marbles and there's just um, one way to do that. And if you introduce some red into the mix, now you have different ways to sequence them and get different arrangements that are, that are unique. And so we're going to see that that's the theme here. And so those, those configuration states that... Um, that tend to have more options are gonna be higher entropy. So now we need to kind of introduce macro state. And this is gonna be helpful by going back to our dice example. So in our situation where we were rolling, let's say two dice, right? We're gonna roll two dice. And before we were mentioning that if we were to list out the exact values that we see upon the roll, like a one and a two, for example, to sum to three, if we instead of track the individual values, if we just have data on the sum of the roll. So if we were like, let's say at a casino and people are rolling dice or whatever, and all we see on the screen, like we can't see the actual dice being rolled, but we see the sum being displayed. If we have that information, what we really have is what's called a macro state. So we, the micro state tells us about the individual pieces of the system and the macro state looks at it uh, as the whole picture. As the whole picture. And so in the context of rolling dice, the macro state was, is naturally like the sum. Depending on what you're doing and what field you're in, like there are other you know, ways you could think about getting to the macro state. But for the simple example of like rolling dice, it's just, you just take the sum, right? Yeah. And so you're watching at the casino and let's just say they're rolling two dice. What number do you see the most? Seven. Seven. There are more ways to I roll. I knew that already, Judd. Don't feel bad. Like I. No, I, I, I get it. Four, oh, okay. three, five, yeah, two. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. He's not stupid. Yeah. Six, so, one. Yeah, come on. <laughs> I would, I, it would have taken me like 60 seconds to do that if we, if we hadn't right. talked about that earlier. So, yeah. Right. Now, this does open a little can of worms depending on 
there's probably half the people out there thinking, well, there's three ways, right? There's the, as we noted, there's the three and the four, there's the two and the five and the one and the six. And then there's another 50% of the audience out there that's thinking, well, aren't there six ways? And that other half is thinking about distinguishing the dice, right? And right. that's fine. It turns out that it doesn't matter which perspective you fall into because the numbers that we're going to use here, I'm going to stick to the case where we really don't distinguish the dice um, for simplicity's sake. Um, you're, if you're on the other boat, all the values are just going to double and you're going to get the same conclusion, right? Yeah. So it doesn't matter. But anyway, the point is you're sitting there, you're watching, and most of the time it's a seven, right? And the reason is there are more ways to roll a seven, the more microstates that are associated with seven than any other um, of the macro states. So the macro state, for example, of rolling a six, there are fewer ways to roll a six than a seven and so forth. And so what you think, and if you do this for you know a variety of systems, you're going to find that basically you're defining a histogram where there's a peak, all right? And the, the x-axis, so to speak, of this histogram is just some kind of indicator of your macro state. And then the y-axis, sort of the intensity of the histogram, is the indicator of like how likely, essentially, or how many ways that macro state can be achieved. And in the case of rolling the dice, the peak is around seven, and then it falls on either side of that down to the sum of two, and which is the minimum, and then up to down to the sum of 12, which is, again, um, only one way to do that, two sixes. So there's already this inherent just in that simple example, this very intuitive realization that, okay, for whatever macro state features the most micro states, most options, that lends itself to being more probable. Well, what does it mean from an entropy standpoint? It means that the macro state that has more possibilities is associated with having higher entropy. And that's literally from the definition from Boltzmann's equation, S equals K log omega. So we know that for the case of rolling the seven, we could plug that in. And again, the energy constant is not terribly relevant in this example, but the point is it's a higher entropy. It's a higher, num it's a higher number of mixed cases of the roll that are possible than say the unmixed cases. And so as an example, um, we could extend this to a larger uh, set. I actually brought some dice today. So if we wanna um, take a little gamble here on, here I have 36 dice, six-sided. They're all fair to my knowledge. We're gonna do a live uh, roll here. Oh, I dropped one, you wanna collect that? We're gonna do a live roll here. <laughs> okay, so we've got 36 dice here in my hand and we're gonna turn them over here. And what do we think? Do we think we're gonna get a unique roll? All ones or all sixes? Or what are we more likely to get? Probably all ones. Probably all ones. I think all sixes. All right, we're gonna see. What about you, Jed? All threes. All threes, Lucky okay. Number. All right, we're gonna see. So nonetheless, Okay, already we see that none of us are correct. We got some fours, we got some ones, sixes, twos. Is there not a three? Is that? Oh, there's some threes, yeah. So pretty much looks like every number, every single option was expressed. So we have a mixed case, as expected, right? So this is, again, kind of the essence of entropy. If you have, and this is a nice example because there's 36 dice, it's a relative, like, when, what game have you ever rolled 36, right? Yeah. Like, so it's a pretty large roll of dice. And the point being, as your system size increases, like the number of dice increase, the likelihood that it's going to be a mixed case just goes astronomically high in probability. A related example with tossing coins, right? So if you have a fair coin that you toss, the two options are heads and tails, right? right? And we expect that for any individual flip, it's 50-50, right? Yep. So then the question becomes, what if you roll n times? Like if you roll 100 times, what do you expect the outcome to be? 
Okay, so about 50-50. Oh, it should be close to 50-50, yeah. right? There's a chance it's probably going to go 51-49 or something like that. That's fine. Yeah. But more often than not, like if you were to repeat that over and over again or just increase the count, let's, let's just go to instead of um, 100, let's go to 1,000. So it turns out that we were talking about this distribution, right? This idea that as you think about macro states as a histogram, what you're finding is that you're building a distribution and that distribution, the intensity, the y-axis value, the count of possibilities goes astronomically high, even for a relatively like seemingly small count of observations. So the example I like to give here is you have um, 10 coins and you're gonna flip those 10 coins and you distinguish those coins. So each one has like a number that is, that is trackable then, sure. right? There are 252 ways that those coins can land half and half, five tails, five heads, 252 ways for 10 coins. If you go to 100 coins, 10 times more coins, 100 coins, that number jumps to 1 to the 29th. It's over so immediately, it's 1,000 moles. Yes. And then it goes, if you do 1,000 times, that number is 3 times 10 to the 300. So the point is, when you get up to 1,000 coins that you're tossing that are all fair, the chances that you roll or that you toss anything but half and half are astronomically low. It's insanely low. Like it's imperceptibly low. <laughs> so, so the point is when we say that like systems and observations are dominated by the states of high entropy, like that is a very real thing. That is a very mathematically tangible thing if you, if you look at those uh, types of distributions. Right. And so now like let's think about, um, so we were talking about scaling it there. Let's like the scenario of taking it from 10 coins to 1,000 coins. So, like you said, there's more ways to get 50-50 uh, than there are other macro states. Let's, let's bring this into just, like, life in general. There is no, like, I'm looking at one of these dice on the table. That dice is not made up of just 10 atoms. That dice is made up of... About a mole, right? Yeah, I was going to say, about a mole. Um, actually, I wasn't going to say that. I was just like, I'll let, <laughs> before I say some yeah. number that's wrong, I'll just <laughs> let Tim say it. Um, yeah, so it's about a, a, a mole of atoms, so t t 10 to the 26 right? And that's a lot more than 10. So we can see how just even the small things on the human scale, like a die, for example, there is, there is, a, there is a certainty about entropy in the universe. Th that being said, even though it's improbable, some of these like ordered cases could arise, but they're so, they're so um, ridiculously small that it's just, it doesn't even matter. You know, at the, in the grand scheme of things in the universe, there is a probable outcome, which happens to be high entropy. If we thought about it as a grid of positions, like I think we've mentioned something like that before, and now to take it to more of a um, more of an actual like physics example, if these positions can be occupied by uh, energy, bits of energy, units are not uh, like even necessary right now, just bits of energy among these positions. It is more it is more likely for that energy to be dispersed in some random way across this array of positions and it is to be all lined up on, on the left side perfectly on the left side all the bits moved over to the left right versus um like let's say there's only 10 bits of energy on a grid of 100 it's very unlikely that they'll occupy just the first 10 bits over here in the left they'll spread themselves out right the more likely scenario is that they spread themselves out and so we'll get into this a little bit later but what that means is that essentially hot things cool down and cool things heat up like energy spreads itself out throughout the universe and it turns out that um, us humans are actually incredibly good at making that trend uh, continue yeah and i think it's worthwhile to point out that um 
in some of these examples, so I was thinking as you were, as you were commenting there, a lot of the examples we're talking about are seemingly very simple, the conditions, the rules at play, like the rolling of the dice, very simple. But this is why entropy is so fun and rewarding to talk about is because there's just so much to consider when we get to like real phenomenon. And so one of the examples is that, remember what we said about the dice? We said that they were a fair dice. We said that every face was equally likely. Yeah. Well, when, for example, in matter, you know, it's not just about geometry. It's not just about like, if you imagine like a, a grid of atoms, just a simple 2D grid of atoms, it's not just about the configuration uh, geometrically. There are forces at play that cause those positions. There's bonding and there's preferential bonding. And so that's basically the analogy of there's like loaded dice yeah. and that skews the histogram. For example, like mix sodium and chlorine together, right? Metal, nonmetal. And you may know they form a compound, an orderly compound because it's favorable for them to do so. So there's other things at play. So remember, entropy is not the only important consideration in thermodynamics. We've been sticking to simple examples just to kind of make some of these, these points a little more intuitive, but real situations often require some accommodation and bending of some of the rules that are at play in these simple examples. One of them being, you know, favorability, the fact that there's bias and there is bias. Judd was saying, you were saying during the break that like entropy at least right now, like it's one of those things where once you start to understand it, so many more things click and it's easy to um, kind of like shy away from it because it is a hard topic, but it's very, it's very rewarding um, once this starts to make sense. Yeah, I just think it's interesting. I mean, or I just think it's crazy how quickly entropy can get out of hand when you increase even just one more like variable on a system. So say we're looking at that grid of, blue um, balls again if we just introduce so we have one red ball but let's think now we add a green ball and instantly it's just the entropy is so much higher yeah so i think it's just kind of yeah the disorder crazy. is right. much higher. and now i'm going to blow your mind again so not only can you introduce that kind of chemical uh compositional entropy in materials there's even other ways to show entropy so here's another one We've been talking about thinking about marbles or atoms, right? And what kind of shape would you associate with like a simple atom? A sphere. Like a sphere, sphere, right? Yeah. Symmetry. So like you don't even think about how the marble's oriented, right, on right. the grid. Right. But what if you had an asymmetric molecule, yeah. right? And let's say you have water. Water is asymmetric, right, yep. to some degree. So what if the water molecules, or I'm just kind of making this up on the fly, but there are other asymmetric molecules. What if they have now a distinguished orientation on each of those sites. That's a rotational entropy. They may, they're not all aligned, right? Imagine people standing, like let's say you had a bunch of clones. Can you imagine a bunch of clones of Judd running around? <laughs> I, I've, I've had nightmares <laughs> about that, yeah. So they're all standing in a line, but maybe they're rotated. They're like facing different directions, right? So yeah. there's a, a, an arrangement of them that they're all Judd, right? They're all compositionally a low entropy because they're all him, but they are rotated in space, right? Yeah. They're facing different ways along the compass. And so, so that entropy presents itself in multiple features. In, simultaneously sometimes, yeah. yeah. And that's mm -hmm. what I was saying. It's sometimes difficult to even track all the ways that entropy can even manifest simultaneously. Yeah. And so it's a, like I said, it's a very rich topic and very rewarding when you like uncover like, oh my gosh, there's a new way to think about this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it can be frustrating at first when you're when you're scrambling just to to get a basic understanding. Yeah. I, I get it. It's uh, it's taken a long time to, you know, I've been doing this for a while and it's it's still... I still uncover new concepts and new deeper understandings. And sometimes I realize, oh, I really didn't understand that at all. And uh, yeah. have to really readjust and, and reincorporate new knowledge. Sometimes that happens. So we've got dice on the desk still um, that clearly show, like none of them are, are the same value. So that, if, 
that's one instance of showing disorder. And now, like Tim said, we have a bunch of different ways for entropy to present itself positionally, um, rotationally, in within systems, and we can't even track them all. Um, so really, it should be quite clear now that disorder is the preferable um, way for systems to... To arrange. Yeah, to arrange <laughs> itself. Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll leave it up to you two. What, what, should we talk about more examples in our daily lives or... Yeah, I think it would be maybe fruitful to, to talk about the... Gibbs. Maybe, yeah, maybe the Gibbs free energy. Yeah. You know I love yeah. talking about that. So um, <laughs> entropy shows up in other equations that allow us to make useful understanding and prediction of, of system behavior. So for consideration, a simple system. And so we'll pick maybe something like aluminum, just spheres of identical aluminum atoms sitting in a crystalline arrangement. So they're an orderly arrangement, more or less, even though there can be some, like, as you know, Judd, some vacancies in there that cause some entropy, dislocations, whatever. But overall, compared to, say, liquid or vapor, we would expect that to be kind of a low entropy from a configuration standpoint, a low entropy configuration. So then we heat it up. So we add energy right into the mix. Remember, we said entropy was not energy. What entropy is, is in a certain framework where you have temperature and pressure as your variables of interest, your thermodynamic variables of interest, entropy represents kind of a gradient of energy. And so we'll, we'll kind of uncover that here a little bit. So what ends up happening is, let's say we add heat into this block of aluminum, this solid block of aluminum, we add some heat. So what does that even mean? Let's think about that. So at the particle level, they were sitting there, and now we know there's some incoming heat. So what, what does that, how does the system react to that? Oscillations. Like between right. the atoms, they start to, they right. start to move. So what's, what we really need to do here is think about heat as, a, as, as like a verb, as an action. Like we, prov we provide a flow of heat into the material. Heat is kind of a process. It's really the transfer of energy. So you have your atoms and they have a nominal position. A lot of times when you look at, like if anybody's seen chemistry books or whatever, and you see atom positions in something, they are frozen in time. Like you're looking at a page where it's a snapshot in time. In reality, they're oscillating and they oscillate with a frequency and an amplitude that's related to what we know as temperature, right? But so you're dumping in this heat. We know we're raising the temperature of this aluminum block and we expect to see those, those oscillations, those vibrations change in sort of what way? They would get bigger. Yeah, so they're moving faster, right. higher frequencies, and moving further, higher amplitudes. Right. But there becomes a problem. Like, that can only go on for so far because guess what? You're in a, let's say you're in the middle of that block as an atom. Like, what dictates how fast and how far you can really go? The other atoms. Yeah, you're going to, like, eventually start colliding. And so there's a limit to sort of how much velocity that those atoms can take on, or you could look at it as sort of frequencies. There's different ways you can kind of track this. But the point is, there's kind of a limit where those get saturated, all right? And the block of aluminum as a crystalline solid says, we know there's incoming energy, like, but we're no longer able just to accommodate that by moving any faster, right? And so the example that I think we were talking about yesterday was that you can imagine like as an analogy, if you're at a concert and maybe at the concert that you show up to, you know it's a rock concert, and for whatever reason, they put out some chairs maybe in the front, right in front of the, the, My favorite the stage, of right? They got these chairs there for some reason, which sort of prompts people to adopt this, you know, whatever order that is, you know, maybe it's just sort of like a square grid of chairs or whatever. So the people arrive, they're kind of standing or sitting in those chairs, but man, then the music cranks and you got this rock mu music blasting. And then all of a sudden, what are they going to do in the front? Start jumping. It's going to be yeah. a mosh pit, right? <laughs> but because they started out 
in a, um, they were coerced into kind of a, a, a compressed environment, a, an orderly environment to begin with. There's only so much like velocity and speed they can run up and gain before they right. bump into somebody. So what could they do when they're sort of saturated in that, but they want to be able to move further and faster? They could kind of expand the space they're occupying, maybe push out against the crowd near them that's just kind of hanging out. In other words, like do work on their environment and expand out. Themselves. And now they have more space. They have more configurational options to therefore express this, this new velocities and these higher velocities and, and rambunctiousness, you know, of the mosh pit that they want to form. It's kind of what's going on here in our aluminum example. Aluminum and as the crystalline solid, when it gets to that melting point, as we know it, if you're just hovering there and, and trying to dump in energy, the crystal has no real ability to accommodate any more of these um, additional velocities, these additional frequencies, unless it does something to accommodate that, which is to change phase. And so often what we'll see in this, in the case of aluminum, what happens is it's a simple material. It happens to just form a liquid. And so the liquid state is more fluid and just has a little bit more open space typically than the comparatively to the crystal. And so now some additional velocity vectors can be opened up, additional frequencies of vibration and so forth. And you could take that even further and go all the way to the vapor, right? You heat the liquid up to the point where now it's incapable of accommodating anymore. And then it phases, change phases to the vapor state. And now it unlocks a huge amount of opportunities for velocity variation and, and vectors and so forth. And so what's interesting is that's our expectation but then the question becomes, well, wait a minute. What about the don't systems want low energy? Isn't that something like universal that we just in general kind of understand about systems? Right. We kind of know that, and this is again an underlying theme in general in science, is like systems try to seek out low energy states. And so this idea that entropy is increasing on this journey, we go from the crystalline aluminum to the liquid to the vapor, we know the entropy is increasing, sort of the chaos and disorder is increasing. How does that inform this other thing we know, which is that systems try to seek out low energy? And that's where the Gibbs free energy comes in. And so there's this metric that we track in thermodynamics under these conditions, and it's called Gibbs free energy, G. It equals H minus TS. Enthalpy minus the product of temperature and entropy. And so very conceptually here, um, again, we're not doing the full calculations because it would take a lot of calculus. We'd run out of time. But... In concept, what's happening is as you raise the temperature of the aluminum, as it, and what's that really mean? It means we're raising the enthalpy, right? Thermal energy is going up. The total thermal energy is going up in that aluminum. And what ends up happening is we know systems want to lower their overall energy. The overall energy that matters here is the Gibbs-free energy. So H is increasing. So there's an increase to G as we raise temperature. And for a while, that's fine. The, for a while, the system just tolerates that. But then the system has an ability to counteract this, right? And so when we go through these phase changes, one of the things that's happening is you're switching to higher entropy states. S is increasing, in some cases very dramatically, to offset the increase in H. So remember, it's G equals H minus TS. S is a positive number. Mm -hmm. We know that. And so nonetheless, as we go to higher and higher entropy states, it balances out to give a relatively, relatively low Gibbs-free energy and maintain a relatively low Gibbs-free energy. Now, it's still increasing, right? Sure. But it's still trying, but the balance is at play. It's trying to keep that number kind of low. So what you're saying is entropy can be used to explain phase changes. Yeah. Because so, as, yeah. We increase, as we increase, the, 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 the heat is inputted into the system and eventually it reaches a capacity and then they say, 
something's got to change. And that change happens in entropy, in which energy finds new ways to disperse itself uh, within the system, which... Right. A right. change of phase opens the door for now an increased opportunity to gain more enthalpy, right? And so that's what's, uh, what's really happening. And, and to allow for the system to maintain a relatively low overall energy. Interesting. I mean, that was definitely a concept that was maybe more abstract in, in your course, or not necessarily abstract, but we didn't have the time to dig too deep into it. So right, yeah, that right, definitely helps. Right. So Judd, I know that, so we're running out of time, but Judd, I know that you would want to talk about what entropy has to do with life here on Earth. Is that correct? Yeah, or if we could just briefly, like you give a brief thing and then yeah. I'll do the quote. Okay, yeah, so this is so this is what I'll say is let's, um, the original kind of like Darwinian uh, theory about like life starting is kind of you need heat and you need the elements that are essential for life. And you combine those things um, and like, boom, that's life. Right. right. But we know from our episode on Enceladus that, at least on Enceladus, the reason scientists were very excited about the possibility of life is because we know there's geysers um, that have a lot of energy and a lot of heat um, at the bottoms of these oceans. Now, the, this Darwinian idea isn't 100% correct, and that's because you need things like these hot underwater geysers to um, disperse their energy, increase the entropy of the system in order to kickstart life. Because as we know, entropy is kind of time's arrow. And as it's moving forward, that gives rise to complex systems like life. And so I think the interesting thing about this is that, um, so just like how we consume food and metabolize or even things as big as stars exploding and um, dispersing their dust throughout the universe, uh, those are all systems within our universe that are constantly increasing the entropy. Um, now, to go back to the geyser thing, they actually predicted that these geysers should exist, that they need to exist in order for life to happen before we ever even discovered them on the bottom of our ocean. We were so certain oh, wow. that this um, function would be necessary in order to start life in general before we had ever seen one. And then we went and discovered skyscraper-sized mineral deposits at the bottom of our ocean, which goes to show you how, um, how large of a role entropy plays in the origins of life. Yeah, and I think it's like that's, an my, overall... that's my mic drop for today. <laughs> I think that the overall idea is that I think humans, as humans, so the universe is tending towards higher entropy. So as humans, our creation was following that trend so we we cre increase entropy our existence increases entropy and we're pretty good at it and we're pretty good at it and so there, here's a quote from jeremy england a harvard physicist who says if you start with a random clump of atoms and shine light on it for long enough it should not be surprising that you get a plant so we're such good creators of entropy that light or life itself shouldn't be super surprising exactly yeah exactly and so uh, maybe that gives us hope to know that there are other, um, I mean, our, our sun, for example, is a very good deliverer of entropy in a low entropy state. It delivers this high energy in a low entropy state, high density photons. And then when they collide with earth, all the systems on the earth, starting at the plants and then to the animals that eat the plants and every system, even the fossil fuels that we're burning, um, all then work to disperse this and create a higher entropy um, system. So as we know pretty easily that just by looking up at the night sky, there's a lot of other suns uh, in the universe that can deliver um, this energy. And if there is life on other planets, we can be sure that they're doing the exact same thing right now, yeah. uh, which is 
I mean, maybe unfortunately for us, but probably burning a lot of fossil fuels and doing a lot of, uh, doing a lot of work um, on the planet. Well, yeah, I think to wrap it up, I think we want to say thank you to our professor, Dr. Cullinan, for coming on. I think you did a great job of explaining all these topics, and I think we have a much better understanding of entropy now. Yes, and you have much to look forward to as well the next time that uh, Dr. Cullinan is on with us. So. All right, well, yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. All right, I think now's a pretty good time for our listener shout-out. This episode's listener shout-out goes to Shauna Jacobs, who is a University of Wisconsin-Madison graduate who studied botany, Spanish, and Korean, and now she's from Texas. She says, hello from Texas. I'm not sure how you do it, but university somehow manages to be calming yet mentally stimulating at the same time. It always feels like I'm sitting down to a conversation with friends while also diving into topics that I might not have had the time to look into. I've loved what you've put out so far, and I'm excited to see what topics you'll cover in the future. Thank you so much for the message, Shauna, from the whole university team. We love to hear back from awesome listeners like yourself, and we wish you the best of luck with whatever you're up to now. And if you are listening to this and would like to be featured as the episode's listener shout-out, you can do so by following us on Instagram and keeping up with whatever we're posting or whatever we're putting on our story, and we will give you plenty of opportunities to do so. Keep an eye out for that. All right. um, Unfortunately, that has to be the end of our episode, but that was a very fruitful discussion on entropy, and hopefully you are leaving here um, maybe not understanding it better, but having more questions uh, even about it and knowing the right questions to ask, which is exactly our goal here is to make you a little bit more curious about what science has to do with your life. So until next time, we will be back with you in two weeks to talk about a topic that we haven't decided on yet. Peace. Yep, that's it. 